This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 80, September 28, 1984. Well, one of you wrote a letter to my wife recently asking her to comment on the role of women. Now, Dorothy is a remarkable woman. She has a very strict Scottish conscience and is very faithful about everything except answering letters. When her grandmother, who died at 96, was still living, uh, together with her aunt, Dorothy could write one letter a year to them. But even that now has become very difficult since she has half the motivation, that is, her aunt. So don't expect an answer from her. However, Dorothy's remark was that in the the um, position paper I wrote a few months ago on the place of women and what was said in Institutes, Volumes 1 and 2, uh, the biblical position could be very well understood. Now, let me comment a little more on the whole subject. The prevailing opinion is that authoritarianism and patriarchalism went hand in hand. Germaine Greer in Sex and Destiny uh, comments on that, that uh, post-Freudian sexual uh, radicalism had as one of its basic premises the proposition that the authoritarian state is formed on the model of the patriarchal family. Now, she questions this, and I would say that uh, we can go further. The patriarchal family, which has disappeared uh, to a considerable extent, was one in which the family was a trustee. It was a trustee that conveyed religion and civilization, art, culture, and everything else from the past to the future. As a result, the family, when you have patriarchy, is the basic institution in society, and this is biblical. We have no patriarchal culture today, although we have patriarchal families here and there. More and more, by the way. Now, in patriarchy, because the family is so important, the role of both husband and wife is exceedingly important because the woman now is one of the two key governmental figures in society. As a result, in a patriarchal family, the role of the woman is very great. She has a tremendous governmental role over the household, the children, the grandchildren, and even the great-grandchildren. My father grew up in a patriarchal family in which the oldest couple had authority over all the uh, children, grandchildren, cousins, and uh, aunts, uncles, and so on. It was their place, and they used that authority, and it was final. No one questioned it. Now, what happened in our culture was that when we went from the trustee family or the patriarchal family to the domestic family, which was husband and wife and their children, the woman lost her authority. And with the atomistic family, which we have today, both husband and wife have lost their authority. And the home is primarily a house in which people eat and sleep, watch television, but basically go their own way so that our present nuclear family represents the end of the road. This is why the patriarchal family is reviving. It always does when you hit rock bottom this way.
an excellent book written in the 40s, I believe, by Carl C. Zimmerman, Harvard sociologist, entitled Family and Civilization, explained a great deal of this history. Then, about 1958, Dr. Zimmerman wrote a book with one of his students, Father Lucius Cervantes, Family and Civilization. Very important book. Unfortunately, both are out of print, and I wish we had money to reprint both. Well, the point of that second book was that we were on the brink of the greatest revival of the family and its strength in all of history. When I read it, I was sure they were right. I am more sure of it than ever. The Christian school movement is one example among many of the reviving strength of the family. Families are placing a double tax on themselves in order to put their children in Christian schools. Meanwhile, the humanistic world is collapsing. As Germaine Greer, whose book, while far from our perspective, has come a long ways from her position on the sexual eunuch, observed, uh, sex is now the new opiate of the people. And she also calls attention to some of the wild opinions that exist today. In China, factories have a sign on the wall, sex is a mental disease. The idea, of course, is to discourage sexuality, to limit the birth rate to one per couple, and to decrease the population dramatically. Then the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov has said babies are the enemies of the human race. Now this certainly puts us at the end of the road. Our humanistic civilization is committing suicide. Well, along these lines, I'd like to read uh, a column I wrote for the California farmer. I've been writing for the California farmer for a good many years, I think perhaps 16 or 17 years. This one I titled Chaos Versus Order. Very often as we read past literature, we do so with minds geared to the present. As a result, we view things from a modern perspective, not in terms of the reality of past events. An example of this is in Shakespeare's play, Othello. When, as a result of Iago's lies, Othello begins to suspect that his wife, Desdemonda, is guilty of adultery, he cries out concerning his suspicion and sudden revulsion, quote, chaos is come again, unquote. Modern readers assume this means a personal chaos. However, as Othello's words later on indicate, it meant for him that an act of unchastity meant a denial of the whole social order, to quote Henry Bamford Park's analysis of it. There is an important meaning here. For us, adultery is merely a personal betrayal, and its scope is limited to the family. For Shakespeare, brought up with the use of the Bible and compulsory attendance at the Church of England, marriage was viewed in terms of Ephesians 5:21 through 33, as a union typifying the union of Christ and his church, and as the foundation of human society. Adultery was thus not only treason to the social order, but an act of anarchy. Hence Othello's cry, Chaos is come again. The basic unit of life under God has had been betrayed, and hence Othello's reaction. Was this simply an old-fashioned perspective which Shakespeare echoed, or is it still a true one? Anyone who has counseled persons who are confronted with adultery and the betrayal of a marriage covenant know how similar the reactions of a betrayed person today are to Othello's. To break the basic relationship of human life is to commit an act of chaos and to shatter a God-given order. 
each of us in our marriages either furnish godly order by what we do, or we become instruments of anarchy and chaos. Well, that's what I wrote for the California farmer for the issue of September 15, 1984. Now, this is very, very true. It means that when wives are put down by their husbands, or when men fail to be men, responsible, exercising care for their whole family, then chaos is reintroduced into the social order at the critical point, the most basic point, the family. Well, now on to another uh, subject, but a related one. One of the books I read recently was by Michel Picel, P-E-I-S-S-E-L, Zanskar, The Hidden Kingdom. This was published by Dutton in 79 and is now out of print. The author is an anthro anthropologist and an explorer who writes in English and speaks very fluent Tibetan. He was the discoverer of 14 ancient Mayan sites in eastern Yucatan. And he got his doctorate in ethnology from the Sorbonne. Now, he has led nine expeditions to the remotest borders of India, Nepal, and Bhutan and is one of the top experts on that area. Zanskar is a small kingdom in a valley of a couple of hundred miles length. And it is high up in the Himalaya mountains. The people are related to the Tibetans. They are largely unknown because it's only a handful of Westerners who have ever been in Zanskar. Now, the author goes there and views everything with the typical uh, adulation of a Westerner for something primitive. He says, I could hardly believe that only recently I had left a world which is polluted and overpopulated. Everything in Zanskar I found near to perfection. Nothing, so it seemed, was out of place or unnatural. Well, of course, uh, <laughs> being very natural, the place was full of fleas. So, one of the problems he had the whole time there, and he refers to it apologetically, is that he had problems with fleas. So, very discreetly, so as not to offend his host whenever he slept somewhere, he would, when no one was watching, spray his sleeping bag with insecticide, one of those horrible things from civilization. Of course, that didn't do the job entirely. So he continued to uh, suffer quite a bit. And... The result was often severe wounds developing from the uh, scratching. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he says, To bite a flea is hardly food for the stomach, but how nourishing for the soul, goes a Tibetan proverb. I had to agree, as for getting all taboos about respecting life, and in spite of the difference in size in the Geneva Convention, I killed all prisoners. Well, the ironic fact is that everything he sees there, he has to adore because, after all, these are out-of-the-way people who've never encountered the pollution of a Christian civilization. So he is entirely in favor of their polyandry. In case you've forgotten that word, polyandry means that you protect property. It doesn't change hands. It's never broken up. 
because all the uh, brothers must marry a single girl unless they want to become Tibetan monks or Buddhist monks. So uh, each household has a wife and a number of husbands. And this way the property is never broken up. This custom is called fraternal polyandry. Allow second sons to benefit from the product of the father's household, yet does not divide it. And he goes on how many Europeans have been startled and shocked by this custom. But he says, few appreciate that this custom is no more unnatural than any others that are dictated by the need to survive. After all, Eskimos kill some of their children at birth and leave aged parents out to die. Nothing is unnatural if it is directed to the survival of the species. Polyandry, a method of natural birth control, is practiced for thousands of years throughout the world, though today only a few Indian tribes and Tibetans practice it, unquote. Well, of course, his thesis that it was practiced throughout the world is supposition. But notice, anything that is natural is all right. Well, that was the Kinsey thesis, and the thesis of a growing number of people that incest, necrophilia, homosexuality, any kind of sexual perversion is all right because it's natural. It exists in nature, which is their definition of natural. The target in all of this is any morality that is supernatural, that comes from God, that says this is a fallen world and it is not normative, and therefore there must be a morality that comes from above. Another interesting book by Dr. Mark LaPaye, L-A-P-P-E, is Germs That Won't Die, Medical Consequences of the Misuse of Antibiotics. It was published a few years ago in 1982 and is out of print. His point is that before antibiotics, there was a decline of many ailments. And what has happened since is that we have created, as it were, superbugs with our antibiotics. He sees the death of the age of miracle drugs beginning. He sees hospitals as, in particular, very dangerous places because he says that, uh, well, let me quote, most patients go into a hospital with a presumption that they will have what is ailing them corrected. Few people think of a hospital as a place where they can get an illness that they didn't have before. That is exactly what happens to a very large number of unsuspecting patients each year, and some of them even die of diseases that they did not have when they entered the hospital. He goes on to say that trust in biotics has led to lapses in preventive procedures such as simple hand washing owing to a shortage of personnel and poor operative techniques and so on. But he says, but most important of all, hospital infections appear to be linked to the development of resistant strains of microorganisms within the hospital environment itself. Proof of such indigenous development is dramatically found by examination of hospital waste systems. For example, waste effluents from hospitals in the Gainesville, Florida area contain a disturbingly high proportion of bacteria, with hospital-acquired R factors when compared with the effluent from non-medical facilities and routes of easy cross-contamination for these bacteria in hospital wards were readily identified by the engineers who studied the problem. 
Dr. LaPay makes an interesting point when he deals with discoveries. And I'd like to, in conclusion, quote his sentence. Discovery favors a prepared mind. Discovery favors a prepared mind. Well, another interesting book by two authors, Joseph Gugametti, G-U-G-H-E-M-I-T-T-I, and Eugene D. Wheeler, The Taking, T-A-K-I-N-G, published by Terra, T-E-R-R-A, View Publications, 2929 Campus Drive, Suite 430, San Mateo, California, 94403, published 1982-995, and still available. A very important book. What the taking documents is federal and state behavior. How increasingly... The federal ownership of things is increasing, that the environmental movement is working hand-in-glove with the federal government to take more and more away from the people. He says, the growth, uh, or they say, the growth of the environmental movement is attributable to enormous corporate funding. Environmental groups aren't funded entirely by membership dues and occasional contributions, as many would like to believe. The movement is big business with major national contributors that include large foundations, corporations, and industrial oil company foundations. And he goes on to say, or they go on to say, that these environmentalists work against business, work against the private sector, and are funded by it to destroy them because they are too cowardly to do anything. And we are treated by these environmentalists and the federal government also with contempt. If we feel that we have some rights when they come in and try to take over our property. In fact, they go so far as to say, even in the darkest days of the depression of the world wars, except for the unfair internment of Japanese Americans, citizens were not treated with the same callous disregard of constitutional rights as has been justified in the name of preserving salamanders garter snakes, and the migration habits of the Alaskan caribou. Are the indignities perpetrated on Briggs, on Lynch, the inholders, and Alaskans any different in the final analysis than, than the incarceration of Japanese Americans in World War II, or racial discrimination in public facilities, or our treatment of the American Indians, the landowners who become victims of the faulty justice system probably feel as Chief Sitting Bull did when he said they made us many promises, more than I can remember, but they never kept but one. They promised to take our land, and they took it, unquote. I think this is a very important book which you ought to read. It gives case after case of the most outrageous incidents. And the kind of things perpetrated, for example, the Coastal Commission uh, demanded that facilities on the coast have an equality, that is, rates that would be obtainable by anyone if they were luxury places. Well, they comment, 
Will those low-income folks so familiar to federal and state bureaucrats be tickled pink to learn that they soon will be able to get a room at the tickled pink motor inn at the Carmel Highlands for $25 a night? In response to the application of the developer to add a four-room wing to the Carmel Highlands Motel, the Coastal Commission required that one room be set aside for guests at a price in the range of $25 per night, despite the fact that the balance of the rooms would be renting from $39 to $89 a night. A newspaper critic noted, What's to prevent a fellow who drives up in a Lincoln Continental with a trunk full of elegant luggage from taking the $25 room? Apparently nothing. A supervisor from Monterey County questioned, what if a coastal commissioner drives up in his Cadillac? Can he get the room? But even the $25 room at the Highlands Motel was not solidified as a condition until the commission had suggested that as an altern alternative, the landowner donate $5,000 annually to a coastal access enhancement program to maintain and operate such coastal facilities as parking lots and campgrounds. In response to the owner's representative who said, the thing I'm concerned about is, I don't know what we're talking about. The chairman of the commission responded, neither do we. The $25 room was therefore thereafter imposed instead of the $5,000 donation. Now, this is one instance among many, some far worse and a bit hard on the blood pressure. I urge you to get and read this book. Then another excellent book by Edith Efron, The Apocalyptics, Cancer and the Big Lie published at 1995 by Simon and Schuster this year. Now, this book goes into the scare tactics used to fund cancer research and how supposedly the food, the environment, and everything is full of carcinogenics. Well, <laughs> Efren does a superb job in uh, debunking the whole thing. And as she points out, first we had the Marxist eschatology, and it's now been replaced as a means of clobbering capitalism by the ecological eschatology. No one believes the Marxist position. It's discredited. But supposedly the end of the world is coming now, still through capitalism, as the Marxists insisted, but it's because capitalism is creating an ecological crisis. Well, she gives a very, very detailed scientific analysis so that you have all the evidence you could possibly want. We call attention to the fact that the cancer apocalyptic so widely promoted and the press picks it up is nonsense. What we have is a regulatory science that is progressively destroying the country. We have been taught to fear nitrites in food, and there's no evidence that they have any uh, deleterious effect. Fire retardants in uh, pajamas, children's pajamas, were banned. But there was no proof that the material used in the fire retardant gave humans cancer. And so on and on. Moreover, as Efren points out, we are surrounded by natural carcinogenics. In other words, the environment, trees, everything, have the same ingredients that these so-called carcinogenics do. Sometimes more. But nobody 
Nobody is told that the environment is dangerous unless it's by some idiot. In fact, uh, here is something which uh, she quotes from the Federal Register. Indeed, a requirement for a warning on all foods that may contain an inherent carcinogenic ingredient or a carcinogenic contaminant in contra uh, contrast to a deliberately added carcinogenic substance would apply to many, perhaps most, foods in a supermarket. Such warnings would be so numerous they would confuse the public would not promote informed consumer decision-making and would not advance the public health, unquote. In other words, the whole natural environment has in it the chemicals that they call carcinogenic. And what they do with mice is to give them such heavy doses that they could not live very well with such a concentrated dose of anything. And then they say, aha, this or that food is carcinogenic because of this or that additive. But those same things exist in natural foods and would create the same effect if massive doses were fed to mice. So the whole thing is a fraud, as Ephron points out very ably. Another book along the same line, now out of print, unfortunately, was by B. Bruce Riggs, Bruce hyphenated Briggs, B as in boy, R-I-G-G-S, published in 1975 and again in 1977, entitled The War Against the Automobile. And it's a devastating book. She points out that most pollution is not caused by automobiles. The idea that the car is a tremendous uh, waste of materials is nonsense. There are very few products that are more recycled than automobiles. Virtually everything in an automobile is recycled. Moreover, the great virtue of the automobile is that it has been a great means of freedom for people. Before the automobile, the railroad lines alone provided for transit and streetcar lines in the cities. This meant that people were crowded into a limited area now they can live 10, 20 miles out of the downtown area and still commute to work, and they do. They do it because they prefer it to mass transit. It means freedom to go and come. Moreover, the real reason for the move against leaded gasoline is not that leaded gasoline is worse but it is dramatically better. Unleaded gasoline is worse. But now they can move against the great dangers of leaded gas. Here is what one official wrote, an official in the New York City's Transportation Control Plan. I quote, My plan was a tool for social change. Very few people grasp that. My crusade is not air pollution. It is the blank automobile and what it's doing to the country, unquote. As long as people have automobiles, they have a great deal of freedom. And this is what they want to destroy. Moreover, the author points out that a great deal has been made about the pollution from motor vehicles. Well, Los Angeles is the city with the worst smog. Actually, Los Angeles has cleaner 
air control, better air control than any other major city in the United States. The problem in Los Angeles is that it is surrounded by mountains on three sides and the ocean on the other, and the air is trapped in uh, by those mountains, and the result is smog. But when you contrast Los Angeles with Montana, one of the strictest environmental states, where the skies are always blue, as we're often told, Los Angeles still has a better health record than Montana. So, as the author adds, nature itself does not provide us with clean air. There are many things in nature that are natural pollutants. That's the way the world is. Then, going to the accident rate, the automobile as a killer of so many thousands of people, the fact is the death rate from automobiles has been dropping for a good many years. On top of that, what few people realize is that not all these fatalities are accidents. There are suspiciously large numbers which are obviously suicide. So, uh, we have to recognize that these are not due to normal circumstances. And it is also quite probably says that faked automobile accidents are used for murder. So, the author makes an excellent uh, case for the automobile. And he says fuel economy is almost entirely a phony issue. And he goes into the reason why. It would be too long to go into it. I just want to recommend it to you. Well, another book just put out by uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who is the editor, published by Per Marquette Press. Alton, Illinois, A-L-T-O-N, Illinois, 62002, for four ninety-five. A paperback is simply excerpts from official transcript of proceedings before the U.S. Department of Education. It's a horrifying account of what schools are doing to children. The kind of degenerate curriculum and behavior that marks the public school, where humanist change agents are busy working on the minds of children. It is a horrifying statement, important for you as a citizen to know about. Well, now to turn to something quite different. In the August 1984 issue of Commentary magazine, there is an interesting article by Richard Grenier, G-R-E-N-I-E-R, -E -E What Really Happened on the Bounty. Grenier was the author of the excellent study of Gandhi and the absurd film on Gandhi. The point that Grenier makes is that we've been treated to retakes of mutiny on the bounty. Captain Bly has become a byword for the inhuman monster. And uh, the mutineers, as though they were champions of human rights, the truth is radically different. Captain Bly was one of the more humane captains of the day. The men who were mutineers were monsters. And when they took native women and settled on Pitcairn, they wound up killing one another viciously and brutally until only one survived. 
And so the fact that we have taken the mutineers to be the heroes and keep refilming a lie when history has more than once indicated a hundred years or more back what the truth is about the mutiny on the bounty tells us something about our civilization. As Grenier concludes his review, Captain Bly in the South Pacific, Captain Park in Africa, there were thousands of them, daring men who never for one moment questioned the value of their missions, or to be frank, the primacy of their civilization. In their age, they were supported with boundless enthusiasm by the crown, the government, the aristocracy, the scientific and literary classes. Even Fletcher Christian felt he had committed a terrible crime against his country, and wherever he wandered in the islands of the Pacific, mutineer though he was, he planted the Union Jack, unquote. Well, just as the books on uh, cancer and the automobile have shown, this review tells us essentially the same thing. Today, we are determined to say that Christian civilization, the free market economy, and everything that goes with these things are the monsters of all history. And therefore, we are perverting history to vindicate that thesis. Now on to another book that I just uh, read, Richard A. Harrison, Princetonians, 1769-1775, a biographical dictionary printed in 1980 by Princeton University Press one of a series on uh, Princetonians of the early days. Well, in this particular period, 1769 to 1775, there were 150 bachelor degrees granted by Princeton. They were almost 18% of all the bachelor's degrees granted in America. Sixty-six of these graduates entered the professions of law, medicine, and the ministry. And these students were in all the states, in England and the West Indies, as residents. Now, in the 150 students in this dictionary, and this was during John Witherspoon's presidency of Princeton, seven were members of the Continental Congress. Two sat in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Three served in the Federal Cabinet. Eight were in the U.S. Senate. Ten were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. One sat on the U.S. Supreme Court. One was a vice president, and one was a president of the United States. Only two of the 150 turned loyalists during the War of Independence. Very interesting record. Well, now on to something else. A Bible. It was sent to me by a friend who is the publisher thereof. And I'm very sorry to see this edition, and it's one of a number like this. A national survey asked, what are the top 40 questions you want answers to? These questions turned out to be what about homosexuality? Will there ever be peace in the world? My marriage is headed for divorce. Is there anything I can do? How can I overcome stress? Are men and women really equal? 
How can I better manage my time? Is there any hope for the overweight? Is infanticide right? I'm hooked on drugs. Can I ever get off? Is capital punishment right? Should I abort my pregnancy? And so on and on. Well, what the Bible, this edition does is to, um, in effect, underline every passage and tell you in the margin that here is the answer to such and such a question. So that, for example, uh, looking at Jeremiah 33, 6, it is a little darker, and in the margin, the letters read health. Then in Isaiah, Jeremiah 33, 8, in the margin, it reads guilt, and it is similarly, similarly highlighted for you to uh, take special care to read. And so on. As you go through the Bible, you have all kinds of highlighting. I just spotted one for housewives. And uh, special pages. Can I as a housewife be fulfilled, inserted? Or how can I communicate with God? Now, I don't like Bibles like this. I know the people who put them out are well-intentioned. But what they do is to turn the Bible into a humanistic handbook. People go to them for answers to their personal problems, not for what does God have for me to do? What are God's marching orders for me? What does God's law say and require of me? We should go to God to hear his command word, not to have our questions answered. And this type of Bible, and I've encountered other editions that have like helps, the readers know what the helps say for their problem, but they don't know what God says. Because all they're interested in is, where are the answers to my questions? I've got a problem. I think that's blasphemous. I really do. Well, let me see. Where can I go next? So much to cover. Well, let's go to something of a different vein. J. Robert Nash wrote a book, a thick, interesting book, entitled Zanies, The World's Greatest Eccentrics which I believe is now out of print. It was published in 82. And uh, it's quite interesting because what he does is to take people who are not crazy but were zany and uh, writes brief uh, accounts of their lives. Now, it is interesting that most of them are Americans and after that English. And there's a reason for that. To be a zany, you have to have freedom to indulge yourself. And the greatest personal freedom has existed in the United States and after that in England. And so the zanies can indulge themselves. Well, one of these zanies was Matthew Arnold, the poet and lecturer. When Matthew Arnold made his American tour, and he had been paid a handsome price to come over, he showed his contempt for America. He refused to speak above a whisper. If he spoke that loudly, no one even in the front row or on the platform could hear him. Perhaps he was merely mouthing his words. Arnold apparently felt that Americans were not worth talking to, but he was not averse to taking American money. Well, uh, like it or not, Mark Twain was a zany. Mark Twain had uh, a great deal of ability and wit. But he also had some peculiarities that were very well covered up for the most part. And uh, 
His, as the author says, his eccentricities were not only rampant but consistent throughout his lifetime. One wherein he smoked like a Soho chimney, went for days without eating, and inexplicably slept on the floor of his bathroom, to name only a few of his myriad quirks, albeit there is no madness discernible in his literary work. Well, another zany was, of course, Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx lost heavily in the market crash of 1929, was virtually wiped out. So he met uh, with his lawyer, Morris, Morris Ernst, and uh, he showed him his investment list while stocks were crashing by the second. Ernst pointed to one of Groucho's stocks on the list. It had fallen from $122 to $2. Where did you get this recommendation? From Bernard Baruch, replied Groucho, telling the truth. Ernst pointed to another stock which had just that dismal day in 1929 dropped from $130 to $1. How about this one? From Gerard Swope himself. Suddenly Ernst grasped the, grabbed the list and held it closer. One stock which Groucho had purchased at 31 had only dropped a point and stu still stood defiantly at $30. For God's sake, Ernst said, with some confidence returning to his voice, where did you get that tip? Oh, that, sighed Groucho. I got that one from a wardrobe woman in the Schubert Theater in Chicago. Following World War II, Groucho convinced his business agent, Salwin Shufro, to accompany him to the visitor's gallery of the New York Stock Exchange. Mark Marx leaned over the railing, smoking his cigar and disdainfully flicking ashes at the stockbrokers scurrying about on the main floor. He then began to sing, his voice rising in volume until he was blaring, when Irish eyes are smiling. The trading suddenly ceased as all eyes turned upward at Groucho, who was not wearing his mustache and was not recognized. Marx continued to sing at the top of his voice. Please, Groucho begged Shufro, I'm afraid they don't appreciate clowning at the stock exchange. Marx ignored his business advisor and went on with his song, shouting it rather than singing. The sergeant-at-arms yelled up from the floor of the exchange, Quiet, you lunatic, or I'll call the police. Marx leaned even further over the railing and snarled out his wonderful lines of revenge. Listen, you crooks, you wiped me out of $250,000 in 1929. For that kind of dough, I think I'm entitled to sing if I want to. Well, there's a great deal more like that. Uh, it's a delightful book. I enjoyed reading it very, very much. Some of the O.W.C. Oh, Fields was a choice one, by the way. I'll have to take a little time for Fields. The portrait of him in films was not far from reality, the author says. And I quote, As the eldest, his father was an Englishman, a Cockney from England, uh, William was destined for only four years of formal schooling in Philadelphia uh, b before going to work for his father at the age of ten. He hated it. James Dukenfield sold fruit and vegetable from a horse-drawn cart to earn his meager living. It was William's job to go ahead of this cart by a block or so, shouting out what his father had to sell that day. After a while, the imaginative William refused to exercise his father's actual wares. To him, apples, tomatoes, and cabbage held no magic. So William would bellow out to customers in the street, pomegranates, artichokes, coconuts. Every exotic fruit or vegetable he could think of spilled from his tongue. 
would-be purchasers who excitedly rushed to the street to discover what that James Dukenfield's cart was filled with nothing more than mundane fare would walk away grumbling. When the father discovered what his son had been advertising, he exploded, chasing the boy about the backyard of their miserable Philadelphia home. In hot pursuit of his vexing 11-year-old offspring, Dukenfield accidentally stepped on a trowel, the end of which jumped up to slam him in the face. In the best tradition of a slapstick, the boy would later employ in his acts. Stunned and enraged, the father scooped up the shovel and whacked William so hard on the shoulders that he sent the boy flying across the yard, almost knocked unconscious. That evening, William took his revenge. One report has it that William got hold of a big box, dragged it into the house, climbed up on a chair, and balanced the box carefully on top of the door. A few minutes later, when Father Dukenfield came in, wham! Down came the box and crowned him on the top of the head. Another version has William hiding in the family tool shed, standing on a ladder, and when his father enters, slamming the very shovel used on him over his father's head, knocking the old man senseless. No matter. The move was made, and William beat a hasty retreat. He took to his heels and ran as fast and as far as his skinny long legs would carry him. He ran so fast and so far that he never came back again. The next time James Dukenfield saw his errant son, the boy was a man who had changed his name to W.C. Fields and became known as the greatest juggler in the world. But in the intervening years, W.C. Fields lived in a hole in the ground miles from his home, later in crates, and other boys brought him scraps of food and... His blanket and shield against rain and snow was a raggedy piece of oilcloth. He took to stealing milk bottles from back porches, and he was bitten so many times by family pets that he, for the rest of his life, was afraid of dogs. Finally, one winter, when the weather was especially severe, he begged a corner of a heatless blacksmith shop where he curled up in a rag bin. And as the author says, because of these miserable lodgings, the comedian was forever grateful for laundered linen. Years later, he would croak, To this day when I climb between sheets, I smile. And when I get into bed and stretch, hot diggity, is that a sensation? Well, when he was able to make money, Fields began to send his mother, money. He was a strange man, very narrow-minded about religion, uh, very hostile to it most of his life. He had some good qualities. He loathed the IRS. As a drinker, he was a slow imbiber, a man who sipped constantly to retain the permanent buzz he liked to sip through the day. He never guzzled liquor. Uh, he liked to sip throughout a filming. And he spoke of having a drink of breakfast. So when he was on the set, he would retire to his uh, dressing room periodically for what he said was his orange juice, a thermos full of orange juice, but liberally laced with gin. Uh, knowing exactly, to quote Nash again, what was in the thermos, one director thought to play a joke on the comedian by substituting a thermos that contained nothing but orange juice. Moments after the comedian retired for his morning pick-me-up, the door of his dressing room, where he had nailed 50 hats of all varieties to the ceiling for obscure reasons, burst open, and an enraged Fields leaped out and dashed onto the set, bellowing, Somebody's been putting orange juice in my orange juice. 
On another occasion, he accused his valet, who doubled as his chauffeur, of appropriating his spirits. He sat glumly, holding his head in his hand on the set. What's the matter, Bill? asked Gregory LaCava. Moaned Fields, somebody left the cork out of my lunch. Well, just one item, because our time is uh, really over. Uh, once when Thomas Mitchell visited Fields shortly before he died, he noticed a black book jutting from the folds of the blanket. And when he asked him what he had been reading, Fields quickly covered the book with his blanket. This was when he was on his deathbed. Let me see that. Mitchell drew black, back the blanket. Why, it's the Bible. Mitchell knew all about Fields' animosity towards organized religion and his much-repeated agnostic beliefs, so he found the presence of the good book all the more perplexing. You reading the Bible, Bill? Yeah, Fields sheepishly admitted. Why? Fields gave Mitchell his famous squint, curled his lips, and from the corner of his mouth escaped the line, I was looking for loopholes. Well, so much for that. Our time is over, and we'll continue again in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and God bless you.